it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. I'm undergoing self-isolation. It's the only way to be. Just for the lack of stimulation. So come self-isolate with me. Just, just sit over there. You know, about 10 feet away would be fine. Ladies and gentlemen, there is... I, I don't want to go all Donald Rumsfeld on your uh, behind, but um, we're living, it seems to me, in an age of um, unknowns. Not unknowables, but unknowns. Um, one, and And part of the problem is some of what could be known... It's being obscured for um, political reasons, and some of uh, what we don't know is because it can't be known yet. So take, for example, uh, the subject of masks. Now, there was a time early on in the uh, pandemic when uh, we were told, don't, don't wear masks. Authoritative people told us this in, in February. And then more information came out. And more masks came out, and then we learned they were telling us not to wear masks, A, because there wasn't quite enough evidence to say it worked as a general population thing, and B, because there weren't enough, there, there was a fear there weren't enough masks for the medical professionals who really needed them, provably. So now, of course, there's that, that sets a certain layer of disbelief or questioning about stuff we're told. And then, as I say, there are people who have that as their goal. Now, take, for example, as an, an unknowable at the moment, or at least an unknown, the question of when we're going to get a vaccine. We, humans. Hey, humans, how are you? Sit down. No, don't. Um, and, and the question has been shrouded in a fog of presidential rhetoric and the rhetoric of people who uh, support presidential rhetoric, if not the president. I support his rhetoric. I don't. And uh, so it's useful, I think, to go outside the bubble, not the, not the NBA bubble, the United States bubble, and hear from an advisor, one of the senior advisors to the British government on the pandemic, unlike the newly appointed senior advisor to the United States government, this guy is actually an epidemiologist. It's a, you know, it's just a little plus. His name is Mark Wool- Dr. Mark Woolhouse from uh, Edinburgh University. They have a, they have, a, and uh, he's on BBC television on a Sunday morning program. And he says this: the government strategy is to sit this out for another six months. That's what we're told, and implicitly in that, the expectation is that after six months, something will be different, and the obvious something is for there to be a vaccine available. I have to say that most people I've talked to who are involved in vaccine development think that we may have a vaccine in six months, but it's doubtful that we will have been able to roll it out on a mass scale by that time. So we're in a difficult situation for some months to come, I'm afraid. And that would include Election Day. It's the time we're in a difficult situation, you see, which is maybe why we're not being told that. 
there is also the question before us right now, this week, of statements made <laughs> by President Trump um, and in several situations. So it's like he's intending to say this, didn't just fall out of uh, the chompers, that he may not automatically accept the result of the election. You know, because it's been rigged and a thing and a thing. And and uh, there's a choice before us in kind of absorbing that. On the one hand, it uh, poses a certain fear that he may not, if the votes go that way, he may not go that way. And then what do you do? Then is it like calling the, the army? Um I, I do recall in this in this um, kind of circumstance when Richard Nixon, you've heard of him, yeah, that one, he started drinking late in the Watergate period, and uh, there are quite reputable reports that he started walking the halls of the White House at night talking to the paintings. I said, talking to, well, I said it to the paintings just now, and... Uh, Again, reputable reporting at the time, or just somewhat later, told us that folks in the pe- folks, officials of the Pentagon, we tortured some folks. People at the Pentagon, officials there, had made contingency plans that if you got an order signed by the president saying, "Nuke Russia tomorrow morning at ten, that was to be double checked with somebody else. So it's possible that that's going on now. And then that will be interpreted by supporters of the president as, oh, the deep state's working again. Now, it's um, there's a piece in the current Atlantic magazine by Barton Gelman, who's a very good reporter. I, I highly recommend his book on uh, Dick Cheney's time as vice president called Angler. Um, and his piece in the Atlantic is just a panoramic dystopian landscape of what can go wrong if the president doesn't want to, you know, say, okay, folks, it's been nice. Um, And it it can be disturbing. And what else can be disturbing is the notion that um, almost uniquely among anybody in public life I've ever followed, and I'm not, I I don't have people following him, I just, you know, read about him, that uh, this fella has constructed both his brand and perhaps his personality around winning. And when he says, you know, if Joe Biden wins, that's the end of America, he doesn't mean America. He means himself. And that could be a dangerous state of mind for for a fella to be in for a while. So on the one hand, that's this one hand, it's this one right here, there's uh, reason to be concerned, perhaps. And then on the other there's this sense that he's trying to start a new conversation to take the subject, the spotlight, off of the ep- the pandemic. And he's, whatever else you think about him, he's the king of distraction. So this could be that. This could very much be that. And we could be, in the hands of the media, once again, victims or at least consumers of this this little dance that 
this man and the media have been doing ever since he called up the New York tabloids in the early 1990s, pretending to be his own press agent and saying, Marla says it's the best sex ever. And in the hands, therefore, of the people on his, in his world who think, hey, once again, we've owned the libs. Now, owning the libs is basically just making fun of people who got, got their panties in a twist because the norm of public figures telling the truth has been disrupted. And I would say there's a, there's a difference between making fun of people who trash the norm of telling truth as a public figure and people who laugh at the public for still thinking that norm exists. The latter is, is the real cynicism. Anyway, that's all by way of introducing something that we can know because we've seen it in action, which is after <laughs> President, President Trump was acquitted in the impeachment, quote, trial, unquote, trial without witnesses, not legal in all jurisdictions, he made it plain and he has followed through on this uh, assertion that he was going to get the people who testified against him. He was going to follow acquittal with a purge. And that's the subject of one of the latest in my series of Donald Trump songs. It's been uh, coming out every week on uh, YouTube and music services. And I'm presenting it for you today here on Hello, Welcome to the Show. Vinman testified against me. He can eat his purple heart out. Sondland gave a million to my inauguration. A misleading way to start out. Jovanovich is next in line. She's gonna wish she took up knitting. She's gonna go through some things Now that I've got my acquitting Rodney is such a phony He once begged me for a job Such baloney Pandering to some crazy mob Anyone can guess his story His little problem with his equipment Now I'm free to say more than I know Thanks to my equipment Worked freaking hard As my acting Chief of staff He was trying To be so faithful It almost made me laugh Now it's his turn in the barrel He's gonna miss his pittance He just bored me Something bad Now I'm living 
From New Orleans, Louisiana, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol III. The only thing more difficult than staging next year's Tokyo Olympics in a pandemic might be convincing sponsors to keep their billions of dollars on board, according to the Associated Press. IOC President Thomas Bach is joining a number of Japanese government and city officials, local organizers, and other top IOC leaders in repeating a message they've failed to convey forcefully enough to deep-pocketed sponsors. Trust us, the Tokyo Olympics will happen next year. Bach and IOC Vice President John Coates, who oversees Tokyo preparations, are speaking directly this week to Japanese officials. Few firm details are expected to late in the year or early next year. The subject is assuring sponsors that the Olympics will happen. Tokyo Organizing Committee CEO Toshiro Muto has acknowledged the words not getting out. Quote, the fact the Olympics are going to take place, the fact itself is not fully distributed to the public, he said. People need to be more convinced that, yes, the Olympics will be taking place. For sure, unquote former deputy governor of the Bank of Japan, so you should trust him. Muto has been vague about how many domestic sponsors are renewing their contracts. He says, of the 68, they're all positive. Maybe he means they're testing for... No, we're still in the middle of the negotiations, he says. We're not in the phase of speaking about any concrete results. Surveys have, unquote, surveys have shown a majority of Japanese companies and the public don't think the Olympics will happen next year or should happen. The bid committee for the Tokyo Olympics transferred a total of over $10.5 million to overseas destinations around the time the Japanese capital was picked as the host city. The sum includes $2.2 million paid to Black Tidings, a now-defunct 
consulting firm based in Singapore. It was recently found to have transferred funds to the son of Mr. Diak, mentioned here last week, who's now doing jail time for corruption. He was an IOC member when Tokyo was chosen. Other payees and specific amounts have not been disclosed due to confidentiality agreements. This is from Kyoto News. According to a report released by the bidding committee. Oh, they, a lot of numbers here, ladies and gentlemen. Too many numbers. But um, Mr. Diak's son, ironically named Papa Diak, was uh, widely reported to have been influential in swinging some votes for Tokyo, you see. So the money does become relevant. Now, Tokyo Olympics organizers have announced several simplification changes for next year's games with few cost savings of any significance. It's like a glass half-filled or half-empty, says Yoshiro Mori, president of the organizing committee. He suggested some might have expected more reductions. But he said major cuts were difficult because IOC contracts already in place with broadcasters and other stakeholders. Originally, the organizers talked about 200 items to cut. They've trimmed that down to 50. Maybe we could have done something more bold or daring, Maury said. The savings, according to the Mainichi newspaper, would be at most 1 to 2 percent of the official operating budget, 12.6 billion. A government auditor says the real spending is twice that much. And why not? It's a movement. And we all need one every day. Wow, I got a little carried away there, and I'm so, so terribly sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, um, another um, another thought that uh, seems to be apropos at this moment. We, uh, we humans, we seem to specialize in um, getting into problems, maybe of our own making, maybe not, and then coming up with solutions which solve that problem but make another problem worse. Case in point, PPE. We, we all know that uh, our frontline medical workers need personal protective equipment to um, be able to handle working in a pandemic. And we are all told now uh, we should be wearing masks, as I mentioned. That advice changed for good and sufficient reasons, although some people don't think so, clearly. Some that I passed on the way here today. Well, the thing about personal protective equipment is because of its very nature, it has to be disposable. And what we've learned in the last little while is disposables contain a lot of plastics. And there's already reporting from San Diego, right near the San Diego desk, that uh, a beach cleanup project found I think from last June, a heck of a lot of PPE, which if you don't pick them up with a beach patrol, goes into the ocean and becomes microplastics. So, yes, we're solving one problem, 
and just one word. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. The total amount of synthetic microfibers going into the wider environment as we wash our clothes is an astonishing number, according to the BBC. U.S. scientists estimate it to be 5.6 million tons since we first started wearing polyester and nylon garments in a big way in the 1950s. That's when America's great. Just over half this mess, 2.9 million tons, has likely ended up in our rivers and seas. That's the equivalent of 7 billion fleece jackets, <laughs> say the researchers. I'd take the jackets, me, rather than the fluff. Increasingly, that synthetic fluff is affecting the land as well as the water. It's only fair. UC Santa Barbara, a team did the calculations, found that emissions to the terrestrial environment has now overtaken that to water bodies. Land is winning some 176,000 tons a year versus 167,000 tons. Yay, land! The reason? Wastewater treatment works have become very good at catching the fibers lost from washing machines. So that's, that's the good news. What's happening is those captured fibers, along with biosolid sludge, are then being applied to cropland or simply buried in landfills and uh, stays on land. What stays on land stays in Vegas. Three Arizona State University researchers found that single-use contact lenses may be a major contributor to microplastic pollution. It's everywhere we want to be. Biodesign Center for Environmental Health Engineering Director Rolf Halden and a couple of assistants found single-use contact lenses to be a major source of microplastic pollution in this uh, first-of-its-kind study. Contact lenses. Did you know what contact lenses are made of? Hands? No, they're not made of hands. Made of silicone hydrogel plastic. type of plastic introduced way back in the late 1990s began seeing usage in the early 2000s. The researchers noticed there is no standard or sustainable way to dispose of those contact lenses. Just keep them, shove them in your eyes. Or other parts. As a species, we're really good at creating things and then just kind of throwing it out there and just hoping it doesn't cause a downfall in society, said one of the researchers. I think when packaging disposal instructions end up on packaging like that, it's because of studies like this. It's because someone's found it's a pollutant, he says. Silicone hydrogel is what makes contact lenses more breathable. Bad taste joke inserted here. Taken as read. Uh, by allowing the uh, contact lenses to receive a greater oxygen level and allow for a soft, comfortable feel. Additionally, silicon hydrogel is used as a medical plastic for devices such as <laughs> breast implants and medical tubing. So it's in us and coming out of us. Single-use contact lenses have become a popular choice as shorter wear times tend to lead to less health and infection risks, according to the study. So it's better for us. Worse for the land, so worse for us. Contact lenses are often disposed of by flushing or other nearby communities in Queens or by being washed down a drain. 
This can lead the lenses to end up in a municipal wastewater tra- treatment system. From there, they can become hidden in, here's our old friend, sewage sludge again. Why don't we just shoot the sewage sludge to the moon? Take it with us on our next moon landing. Hey, we brought... Pre- the um, study found that during two experiments of different types of sewage... <laughs> Man, don't I wish I went into science... The contact lenses didn't biodegrade throughout the entire process of wastewater treatment. When uh, we went through the final product of what comes out of a wastewater treatment plant, which is pretty much fertilizer, we ended up finding two fragments of contact lenses, said the researcher. They also have the ability to carry bacteria, pathogens, and viruses. This can enter the food chain from contacting fertilizer soil and eventually, wow, we have worked it all out. Just just one word, ladies and gentlemen. And it's, it's not a nice one, but it's just one. Microplastics. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart Here's one we didn't uh, expect and yet shouldn't be surprised about. Twitter says that it's artificial intelligence. It has a system which automatically crops images in tweets. So it can fit, I guess. The image can. That AI didn't exhibit racial or gender bias when it was developed, even though in production it may now prefer to drop out or crop out, sorry, dark-skinned people and focus on women's chests. There's cartoon music every time I say women's chests. The social network acknowledged it has more work to do to address these concerns. Quote, Our team did test for bias before shipping the model and did not find evidence of a racial or gender bias in our testing, the Twitter spokesperson said to the British tech journal The Register. But it's clear from these examples we've got more analysis to do. We'll continue to share what we learn, what actions we take, and we'll open source our analysis so others can review and replicate. This comes up because last weekend various Twitter users posted or posited when they posted that the code Twitter uses to select the viewable portion of images displayed in Twitter feeds is biased against people with dark skin. This was based on a few publicly cited examples of Twitter's photo framing which used images of both light-skinned and dark-skinned people that skewed toward the light-skinned person. Essentially, when you tweet a photo, how it's viewed depends on the device you're using. Twitter selects a crop that fits the screen you're using. Given a choice, Twitter crops the image so a lighter-skinned person is shown in view or a female chest. (laughs) It's like white guys developed this, isn't it? Twitter software, almost as if Twitter software engineers wrote about the web business image cropping algorithm a couple years ago, which was designed to zero in on saliency. That's the calculated importance of various image features rather than faces, which was the previous focus for Twitter's image framing. Why would you have to teach a machine about saliency? That's such a good question. Could hire. The claims of racism also elicited a reminder from a professor of computer science at Caltech, 
that gender bias, conti- gender bias continues to be a problem. Last year, she pointed out image cropping on Twitter and other platforms like Google News that often focus on women's torsos rather than their heads. Issues of this sort, according to the Register, turn out to be rather common. Zoom's algorithm for replacing video backgrounds doesn't do a very good job of detecting the outlines of dark-complected faces. Turns out Zoom has a face detection algorithm that erases black faces and determines that a nice pale globe in the background must be better face than what should be obvious, said one of the Twitter users. Concerns about bias or unfair results in AI systems have proliferated in recent years, including on this program, as the technology has infiltrated hiring, insurance, law enforcement, advertising, and other aspects of society. Check out Kathy O'Neill's conversation with me from a couple of years ago on this very subject. Prejudiced code. It may be a source of indignation on social media, but it affects people's access to opportunities and resources in the real world. A variety of factors go into making insufficiently neutral systems, such as unrepresentative training data, lack of testing on diverse subjects at scale, lack of diversity among research teams, and so on. Among those who developed Twitter's cropping algorithm, several expressed frustration about the assumptions being made about their work. One says there's a reason. He is now a senior lecturer on machine learning at Cambridge. There's There's a reason to look into the results people have been reporting, though he cautioned against jumping to conclusions about negligence or lack of oversight. Some of the outrage was based on a small number of reported reported failure cases. And uh, another engineering lead at Twitter noted that bias research was conducted on the image cropping algorithm way back in 2017. There are so many edge cases in the real world, said um, one of the researchers, Current, design, current deep learning methods make it impossible to easily discover those during testing because of its black box nature. Gary Marcus, in a conversation on this program, warned about that. There is both bias in data, and deep learning methods tend to amplify and obfuscate the problem. Well, if you can't solve it, you might as well obfuscate it. I mean, that's fair. It's a smart world, ladies and gentlemen. So, I don't think we're smart enough to live in it, frankly. It's it's us. You know, it's our problem. We're just living in the machine's world now. Um, back to the subject at the beginning of the program. Yes. <laughs> President Trump. Um, I mentioned that there's a series of songs I've been dropping on YouTube and music services one a week. And uh, there's a new one coming out this week, and I, in all modesty, am proud to announce that there's also a new full-on music video being released this week on YouTube of what you'd swear is President Trump singing this song. So I'm delighted to um, be the only person on public radio, apparently, to call your attention to it. Um and it, it has its uh, roots, this song, in the revelation by the news site Axios.com a little while ago. They had managed to liberate some pages of the president's full daily schedule. What we see normally is, is a, uh, a summary version. 
And the daily schedule tells you who he's me- with whom he's meeting. Thank you. And uh, what the subject matter might be uh, and how long that would last. But the full schedule that was liberated, as I say, by Access.com revealed that there are gobs of hours every day, two or three at a gob, which are labeled with no description of uh, any activity, any meeting, any person being met with, any agenda. No, they're labeled with only two words. And they recur every time these gobs appear in the schedule. And the words are executive time.
from a swamp filled with all of that slime. Cause for me, there's no time like executive time. It's executive time. And now, News of the Godly. Retired West Virginia Bishop Michael Bransfield told the Catholic News Agency this week that he's retired, wants to stay retired, and does not want to do battle, his quote, with his successor. After his successor, Bishop Mark Brennan of Wheeling, Charleston, called Bransfield's apology, recently issued, quote, self-serving and, quote, lacking in any contrition. Quote, I'm retired and I want to stay retired and I do not wish to do battle with my successor. I really don't, Bransfield said. The problem is when I start to comment, it gets into a battle, he added. Now, here's the background, those of you who are still listening. After his retirement in 2018, Bransfield was accused of sexual and financial misconduct. A church investigation followed. He was ordered by the Vatican to make financial restitution, I said restitution, for funds stolen from the diocese and to apologize. Apparently nothing was found about the sexual stuff, except for the restitution. In a letter to West Virginia Catholics, Bishop Brennan, who succeeded Bransfield, said the reaction of local Catholics to Bransfield's Vatican-ordered apology has been mixed. Bransfield led the uh, diocese from 2004 to 2018. He is reported, according to the Catholic News Agency, to have sexually harassed, assaulted, and coerced seminarians, priests, and other adults during his 13 years as bishop. Do a lot of harassing in 13 years, I guess. After the Vatican ordered investigation, Bransfield released an apology in August, the letter through his former diocese, in which he apologized... And I think you remember me reading this on the air when it, ha- when it came out. He apologized for, quote, any scandal or wonderment caused by words or actions attributed to me, unquote. It was a, an interesting, to say the least, apology at the time. But now the new bishop who succeeded him says, quote, For my part, I found his apology self-serving and lacking in any recognition of or contrition for actually having offended people. And Bransfield His only other comment was, that's the bishop's opinion. I think I I read a (laughs) in that response, but it it didn't make the uh, typography. Uh, That would be uh, news of the godly, ladies and gentlemen, and it still is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now... Going to read the trades for you. From Uncle Ben's to Ben's Original from Advertising Age. Won't take too long to read this to you. And I'll start right now. Uncle Ben's is changing its name to Ben's Original next year. It's an overhaul of the Mars food brand that will also see it drop the image of a black man 
from its packaging. That would supposedly be Uncle Ben. Mars is also committing itself to community outreach programs, including a partnership with the National Urban League and a scholarship fund for aspiring black chefs. Change is being backed by a print ad running in newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal, which opens with the lines, quote, We've listened. We've learned. We're changing. We understand the iniquities that were associated with the name and face of the previous brand, said the global president of Mars Food in a statement. Earlier this year, the manufacturers of Aunt Jemima's products announced they were dropping that name as well. Uncle Ben, not available for comment because we couldn't find an actor suitable to play the part. But that's what happens when I read the trades for you, copyrighted feature. Now some news of the uh, inspectors general. The Trump administration rescinded an award recognizing the work of a journalist from Finland last year. They did that after they discovered she had posted criticisms of President Trump online. Then the administration gave a false explanation for withdrawing the honor. This is according to a report by the State Department's internal watchdog, the Inspector General. He's still there? Oh, this is a new one. The report tracks how the discovery of the journalist's remarks worried senior U.S. officials and prompted a decision to withdraw the honor to avoid a possible public relations debacle. The report's release is likely to worsen tensions, according to the Washington Post, between the department's leadership and the Inspector General's office. That has gone, undergone several shakeups following the firing of the previous Inspector General at the request of the Secretary of State. According to the report, the journalist Jessica Aro, Aro, how are you, was selected for the State Department. <laughs> I really should learn to not do that. Was selected for the State Department's International Women of Courage Awards for her reporting on Russia propaganda activities dating back to 2014. Aro endured death threats and cyber attacks for her work, which helped expose Russian troll factories. And the, uh, you know, uh, after she was informed of her selection and offered flight options, State Department interns discovered her Facebook and Twitter posts, in which one of which she noted Trump constantly labels journalists as enemy and fake news. In another, she noted Trump and Putin would meet in Helsinki, where Finnish people can protest them both. Sweet. After the State Department withdrew Auro's invitation, and the story became public in a report by Foreign Policy magazine, the department's press office told reporters she had been incorrectly notified and she'd been selected as a finalist, adding, this was an error, this was a mistake. The department also told Congress that Auro was ultimately not selected to receive the award due to the highly competitive selection of candidates. But the inspector general ultimately found the decision to give her the award was not a mistake and was included in a memo approved by Secretary of State Pompeo. Oh, that thing. The report also noted that the decision to withdraw the award stemmed from the discovery of the social media posts, despite public claims otherwise. 
Every person the Office of Inspector General interviewed in connection with this matter acknowledged that had her social media posts not been flagged, she would have received the award. According to the report. News of Inspector... I, I have no report on how long this current Inspector General is going to keep his jobs, but we'll follow that story for you in News of the Inspector General, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast, and now the Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry. A downtown Lincoln, Illinois microbrewery, Obed and Isaacs, found itself at the center of what could be labeled a brouhaha, that's not my writing, over the name of one of its brews. Microaggression Session IPA, a New England India Pale Ale, made its debut last month. Though meant to be a play on words, it did not take long for the obvious to be pointed out. Khan's Hospitality Group, which owns the brewery, said it was made aware of the offensive name this past week, quickly removed it from their tap list, print menus, website, and social media postings. We know the intent was not malicious or deliberate. However, harm was still done. For that, we truly and sincerely apologize. The name was insensitive and not in line with our views at Khan's Hospitality Group. Ask your investment advisor if Cons is right for you. No, they didn't say that. Big changes are happening at the Harvard Business School, according to the Wall Street Journal. This week, the school announced it was planning to hire a chief diversity officer, expand its case study offerings on race and diversity issues, check out the Uncle Ben's thing, and recruit more black students and faculty. We hadn't made the progress I hoped we would make, said Nihin Noria, dean of the school. Race needs its own independent focus. This comes three months after Noria wrote a letter acknowledging the college hasn't done enough to recruit black students. He said only 5% of the students enrolled in Harvard Business School are black. That number has remained stagnant for 30 years. I apologize that we have not fought racism as effectively as we could have and have not served our black community members better, he wrote. Loudoun County, Virginia, public schools issued a formal, a formal apology this week for being one of the last school systems in the nation to desegregate its schools. This follows a year of controversy. <laughs> they didn't just do it. And a probe by the state attorney general into allegations of racism. Now, who would have thought that? In a letter addressed to the black community of Loudoun County, officials said they were sorry for their segregated schools, which lasted until 1967. That's 13 years after the nation's highest court ruled public school segregation was uh, not right. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Ed that public school segregation was unconstitutional, as a matter of fact, and that public schools should integrate with all deliberate speed. A federal court order in 67 required the Loudoun County public schools to fully integrate, closing that big loophole. The apology is one step of the district's 16-step action framework to address systematic racism, which the district released this summer, somewhat later than 1967, in case that hasn't been pointed out to you lately. Fox News Channel apologized this week for any confusion in reporting a now-debunked story, according to the Associated Press, about the mayor of Nashville, Tennessee. The story apparently concerned or concealed the number of uh, supposedly 
involved him concealing the number of coronavirus cases linked to bars and restaurants in Nashville. Because they were so low. Story came from a report by Nashville's Fox affiliate, WZTV, on leaked emails that the station retracted late last Friday upon learning they didn't mean what a reporter thought they did. I, did. I didn't read the emails right. The story spread among national conservative commentators as a supposed example of the harm of coronavirus restrictions. It was the lead segment on Tucker Carlson tonight and Fox and Friends the next morning. A fact check done by the Nashville Tennessean, why that's a newspaper, debunked the WZTV reporting, which was retreated by Donald Trump Jr. and called for Tennessee, led to Tennessee Marsha Blackburn, Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican, to publicly call for an investigation into the mayor, a Democrat. Oh, you kids. The station's story quoted an exchange between a Nashville health official and a representative of the mayor's office where the health experts sought and received assurance that coronavirus data linked to specific bars and restaurants would not be released to the public. Mayor's office later said the data was kept private for fear it could inadvertently lead to the names of people who test positive for COVID-19 being revealed. That's a violation of federal health privacy laws. Meanwhile, the total number of cases linked to bars and restaurants in Nashville, about 80 in August, was actually publicly revealed then. The news director of WZTV, Brian Magruder, didn't return a call seeking comment. The station did say, we incorrectly asserted the Mayor Cooper's office withheld COVID-19 data from the public, which implied there had been a cover-up. We want to clarify we do not believe there was any cover-up, and we apologize for the error and oversight in our reporting. Carlson Tucker had called the station's initial report a remarkable story, offering conclusive proof that political leaders were lying about the coronavirus. Hide all good news. That's the policy, Carlson said. Um, And uh, Fox and Friends host Brian Kilmeade said that the mayor has to resign yesterday. His co-host Steve Ducey on the following day noted the station Fox based its report on had retracted the story. We wanted to apologize, he said, for any confusion. As if that wasn't the intent weren't. Dateline West Haven, Connecticut, Mike Southworth, a Republican candidate seeking to represent the 14th State Senate District, issued a statement Thursday apologizing for past Facebook posts, saying he had not intended to be sexist or ageist. He had commented in 2018, ha ha, on a meme insinuating that the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been the object of inappropriate attention from Abraham Lincoln in 1862. A resident objected to the post as disgusting and a terrible show of bigotry. Southworth said that while he had not intended to be sexist or ageist with his posts, he could understand how others would interpret them differently than he did. So he apologized. Here's another restaurant owner apology. The owner of Center Ice Bar and Grill in um, the uh, the Community First Sioux Pee Wee Arena in South St. Marie, that's in Canada, has apologized on Facebook over a sign that was placed in front of the arena late last week. The sign read, Black Olives Matter. Try our new flatbread pizza. Over the weekend, the sign received harsh feedback on social media. On the bar's Facebook page, owner Tony Cochimiglio wrote, as the owner of the locally owned bar and grill, 
I sincerely apologize for any misunderstanding I've caused with the wording of my sign. I was trying to make light of a very sensitive situation. I immediately took the sign down as soon as it was brought to my attention that the wording may be offensive to some. I was only wanting to promote my new pizza. I have supported our community for the last 10 years. I hope you as a community continue to support my business. I'm not a racist, and I will never be a racist. And again, I am truly sorry. And again, buy my pizza! An embattled Republican state senator is now apologizing for his association with QAnon. He's a Connecticut state senator. This is two weeks after being embroiled in controversy over a car windshield decal that represents that movement. He said it was wrong, and he's deeply sorry to anyone who's been offended over the issue. He said he didn't completely understand the beliefs of QAnon and apologized for his failure to look into the movement more deeply before he put the sticker on his car windshield. TikTok, the brief video site, is now the subject of argument over whether it will continue to do business in the United States of America, has apologized for suppressing LGBT plus content in the past. A director told British lawmakers this week the company now removed LGBT plus images only when required to do so by law enforcement agencies. It uh, came under fire last year over reports it censored depictions of homosexuality, such as two men kissing or holding hands, and artificially prevented posts from LGBT plus users from going viral in some countries. I'm sorry, we really got that wrong, said TikTok's director of public policy in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, where apparently it still can do business. Louisiana Secretary of State Kyle Ardoin apologized this week for routine scheduled maintenance that shut down the state's voter registration website on the evening of National Voter Registration Day. You can't write them like better than that, ladies and gentlemen. The routine maintenance had long been scheduled to take place and was an oversight, Ardoin said. So they need more oversight. See how that works? A scientist involved in the secret Soviet program to create the Novichok nerve agent has apologized to the Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny recovering from apparent Novichok poisoning in Berlin. Vil Mirzayanov, see, a chemist who was the first to reveal Novichok's development in an interview with Russia's TV Rain, said he wanted to apologize to Mr. Navalny after Germany said it found unequivocal evidence he was poisoned with Novichok. The CEO of Wells Fargo has apologized for years of the banks screwing its... No! He apologized for blaming the lack of black employees at the bank on a limited talent pool. That's what he apologized for. While it may sound like an excuse, the unfortunate reality is that there's a very limited pool of black talent to recruit from, Charlie Scharf said in a company memo. The memo and some similar statements during a Zoom meeting exasperated some black employees, and his comments were pilloried online. So he is so sorry. Tribune, uh, Tribune Publishing, publisher of the Chicago Tribune, hence the name, apologized for a phishing test. It was a security test where it sent employees a notice saying that they were in line for a bonus, which they weren't, at a newspaper which has recently had a wave of layoffs. It was a security test, you see. And they're sorry. The man who shot John Lennon, Mark David Chapman, has apologized to Yoko Ono 
40 years. After Lennon's death, he was denied parole for the 11th time following a hearing. Last month, he said he killed Lennon for glory and that he deserved the death penalty. And finally, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un issued a rare apology for the killing of a South Korean official near the two countries' disputed border. The president of South Korea said it received a letter from Kim in which he expressed immense regret over the unexpected and unfortunate incident. He doesn't usually do this. Must be the good influence of President Trump. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. More next week. Same time on the radio. Same time on your audio device of choice if you want it to be the same time. And if you don't want it to be the same time, it can be any other time. And it would be just like taking fewer words to explain all that if you agree to talk with me then, would you? Already thank you very much. Uh huh. The email address for this program playlist of the music you hear here and your chance to buy and own not a license you can actually own Cars I Talk t-shirts Cars I Talk t-shirts I said all at harryshare.com and I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer and my Twitter feed will alert you when the new executive time video goes live on YouTube it's worth a loan just for that. Maybe. A tip of the show, the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh here at WWNO for help with today's broadcast. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions. and originates through the facilities and what facilities they are of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the change is easy radio network so long from the crescent city